This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Vivian J. Lamb Lecture Series on Augustinian Thought and the Sciences normally offers one lecture every semester. It's a nice way to try to pull together the Colleges of Arts and Sciences, or I should say the College of Arts and Sciences into one, and to try to make sure that the uh, the riches that we have on campus don't get kind of um, isolated one from, from another. So in this series um, on the Augustinian tradition and sciences, um, thanks to the work of Dr. Lowell Gustafson, we have the possibility of hearing Archbishop um, Puala on the topic that you You've seen the title of it, but I'm going to let Lowell do the introduction of the person. So my role is really ceremonial. I just get to introduce, to welcome, and to hand over everything to you. Thank you, Father. Well, it's it's my pleasure to introduce it. Can you hear us okay? Uh, Love, is this all right? I'm not sure you can hear us. Okay. (laughs) That's not a good thing. Can you hear us? I can hear you. Okay, great. Okay. Anyway, I am delighted to introduce to you His Eminence, the Most Reverend Lazar Puhalo. He is uh, from uh, Canada. He's the abbot of uh, the All Sa- uh, Monastery of All Saints of North America. So he is right now on the west coast uh, of, of Canada speaking to us. And uh, as, as, as Father Fitzgerald mentioned, he can see the people who are in the inside. Oh, no, okay, now he can see those. And then there are folks off to the side here. So uh, I can move the camera around, but if I tried to do that, I would screw it up. So I'm not going to try to, uh, to, to do that. In any case, it's a delight to have him here virtually. Uh, and uh, he is a, uh, the author of a number of books uh, and has been interested on the relationship between religion and science for many years. His books include... The Evidence of Things Not Seen, Orthodoxy and Modern Physics, and The Neurobiology of Sin, along with uh, a number number of other titles. Uh, He's going to speak to us today about uh, his views on this, and so we're going to ask him to to speak a little bit. bit, And then afterwards, of course, he's agrees to uh, to take some questions and, and comments, which he will be able to hear because of microphones uh, throughout the uh, the room. So even if he can't see you, he'll be able to uh, hear you at the end. And of course, we can hear you uh, uh, perfectly fine. So uh, l- let me move this camera. So, oh, yeah, you got it. Okay. Okay. Uh, and thank you for joining us. Oh, yes. Well, uh, I'm retired Archbishop, actually. I'm not Archbishop of Canada now. <laughs> and uh, also, I don't want to disappoint any students, but I'm also not a recruiter for Hogwarts. Uh, <laughs> So, but you know, with my black robe and my beard, some people hope. Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was going to say something about the models of reality as sources of conflict. Because so often, between science and religion, and between people in general, um, tribes and nations, our models of reality are what cause a great deal of the conflict. And when we talk about models of reality, have to realize that we live in a, in a model-driven world. I think it was Werner Heisenberg who said that uh, in modern, in quantum mechanics, we've passed beyond the capacity of ordinary language to express realities. And we have to resort to mathematical formality, formalisms. And in a way, the mathematical formalisms are metaphors for things that are not describable adequately in human language. At the same time, St. Gregory of Nyssa, one of the great uh, Orthodox Church Fathers, said that when we speak of the Holy Trinity, we're not really speaking of something concrete. We're only using the best words available in human languages to describe a relationship. But generally, we, I think, fall into what Whitehead called the fallacy of misplaced concreteness in in our ideas and our, our models of reality. Perhaps the most famous clash of models of reality was between, um, well, Copernicus, I suppose, but really Galileo and uh, and the Aristotelian model of reality about the universe. Uh, you know, Gal- uh, 
Copernicus came up with the theory, but when Galileo pointed his simple telescope at the heavens, he demonstrated that the theory was correct. But, uh, and he gave us another model of reality, which we've passed well beyond. You know, by the fifth century, Anaxagoras already realized that the Earth rotated on its axis and revolved around the sun. I think Aristarchus said the same thing already by the second century. So it wasn't uh, completely unknown, but the model of reality that was formed was formed because Aristotle was considered almost a pre-Christian Christian thinker. And uh, so he, his thought really went out. We also have to realize that we live in what we would call a reality tunnel. The reality, the reality tunnel is really the scope of what we can know, limited by the instruments with which we have to look. And sometimes those instruments are ideas and not telescopes. So we, we've come into this uh, model-driven reality thinking that we have concrete realities, or thinking that our models are concrete realities. If, for example, we look at, say, the creation narrative in Genesis, we understand, at least most educated people, understand that what we have here is a very simple narrative that's about meaning and not a concrete description about the creation of the universe. Yet we have many, many people who are more fundamentally oriented who believe that this is a, a very literal description of the creation of the universe. And, you know, it doesn't mention deuterium even once. So uh, we know that it isn't. Uh, and we have to remind ourselves that it was necessary for Moses to come down from the Mount of Sinai with the Ten Commandments. It would not have been terribly useful had he come down with the periodic table of the elements. <laughs> yeah. So you see, we're, we're confusing something that's really about meaning with something that is supposedly scientific. And since many people have formed this into their ultimate model of reality, they're very distressed and disturbed, and even their faith is even shaken, when modern science comes along and says, well, no, this isn't reality at all. Uh, I, I, I would venture to say, though, that the, uh, the creation narrative, which tells us that the real issue with mankind is that we fell from a, an atmosphere of unselfish love into egotism, self-centeredness, and self has a great deal to say to humanity and to all of the tragedies that we've developed ourselves in humanity. So it, it has very profound implications for the meaning of, of, of human existence and the problems of humanity, but says very little about the actual creation, which wouldn't have been terribly useful to, do, to describe the creation and the coming into being of the universe to uh, a group of wandering, uh, semi-literate, real-literate people in, in the desert. So we had to have a revelation that was about meaning. Now, one can write that's that is revelation or not is uh, up to one. But what science has given us is an expansion on our a constant expansion on our knowledge and understanding. And we realize that the Earth is 4.5 billion years old, give or take a million, and uh, that the origins of of, of humanity are quite different. And yet at the same time, on the other side, we cannot claim it scientific. But it appears that those things which have survived over the millions and billions of years have had an innate capacity for evolution. In other words, evolution doesn't necessarily so haphazard and uh, uh, accidental as it appears. So we have uh, a little bit of tension between a strictly scientific explanation and discussion and the models of reality, which are, we depend sometimes by looking at some aspects of science. And when we are defending models of reality, really, we can't say that it's scientific. We have to say that we're defending something that has become an ideology for us. Now, how this idea of, uh, you know, when uh, Nikolai Berdyaev, who certainly wasn't a theologian, but he was a great existentialist philosopher in Russia, he does mention that when, when faith collapses into religion, and then religion collapses into ideology, 
may have some relationship to your problems. Because the ideology itself is the basis upon which most wars are fought. Most of the strife in our world is unfolds. And religion certainly has played very deeply into that strife and that warfare. So we see that if we understand that they're presenting our models of reality, and science certainly understands, I mean, any good physicist will tell you they're presenting a model of reality and not reality itself. And we should also tell them we're presenting models about meaning from a religious point of view. Sometimes those models about meaning, however, clash so much that uh, you know uh, we, we, we worry about sometimes Islamic terrorism attacking us. Um, the Shiites have the same problem as Shiite Muslims, particularly in Pakistan. So the, the clash between Christian religions, for example, a 30 years war, which killed uh, more, more, a bigger percentage of Europeans than this first world, it killed 40 into the population of Europe. The Fierce War was strictly about religion, not doctrine. And it was fought between religious groups. The same thing between uh, the Alawites, the Shiites, the Sunni, and uh, the uh, uh, Muslims. So we can see that this permeates a great deal of the problem that we have when every religious group thinks that their models of reality are actually absolute and concrete statements of reality. And don't realize that they're much. <coughs> Most of the conflict between science and religion reality. But also conflict nations are based on models of reality, which actually ultimately are not reality. And when you have simple uneducated groups, say North Korea, or a situation in Iran, their models of reality have been taken as, as absolutes about reality itself, then we have to have major conflicts. And we have to have people killing each other, very various models of reality. So it's one reason I wanted to invite attention to this problem, clashes of models of reality, and to reminding people about the reality tunnel which keeps us from actually seeing very often the broader picture. Um, in, in, in the big history, as we call it now, uh, of the universe, the history of everything that exists, including mankind, is written in subatomic particles. The, the universe is absolutely filled with hitting the stuff of life. There, there's even uh, a galaxy that has a great deal of alcohol in it. And, um, you know, so far the Irish haven't started pilgrimage in there, but uh, but uh, it it does have the same truth. And uh, so when we when we talk about the history of mankind, we also have to realize that a star dies, explodes. It disseminates more of the stuff of life. And I have one picture here of an exploding star with a fetus in the middle of it. Because we're made up of all that stuff. We're intimately related every star in the heavens to the whole, to every galaxy, to every comet, to every uh, thing that exists in the universe. We're all intimately related with one another. And when we think about that and have a greater appreciation for our relationship with the universe and with, and with our own Earth, you know, if, to, to see the uh, ecological crisis, have two models of reality. There is a crisis and one that there isn't. One that we have global climate change and one we don't. Now, there's very clashes about that. And yet we realize that life itself depends upon how we resolve this clash of models of reality. Because we're faithful in the destruction of the life support don't think about ecology. Let's think of the life support system. You know, just like on the enterprise, if somebody shoots us and our life support system goes down, then, you know, Captain Kirk and all of us are, are dead meat. Uh, uh, but our life support system is extremely pleased to say that the ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople, the actual head of the church, 
just realized in the past five years been very involved in this crisis, accepting that there is a crisis and trying to give a position of leadership and, and try to involve them. But you see how deadly reality can be. Uh, some of my colleagues in the uh, Protestant world say, well, we don't need to worry about the ecological crisis because we're all going to be raptured before it, uh, it gets serious. For those of us who don't believe in the future, probably have a different model of reality about that. But uh, in any case, the models of reality are at, at the root of so much of the strife in our civil society, in our culture, uh, in our society in general, among religions and between religion and science. Sometimes among scientists. You know, cosmic string theory is, uh, is something of a heresy. So you see, it's not just a religious word. Uh, so uh, uh, this is one thing I wanted to, to really bring out. But I want to out some things that amaze me in their similarities. That is the connection between sex and death. We find that in the creation narrative somehow. I mean, that's not what the creation narrative says. Some of the early church fathers and writers saw a connection between the two. And we know that there is a connection psychologically between the two, sex and death. Uh, it's tragic to say that the ultimate sexual fulfillment, the ultimate well, thrill, is killing somebody. Why you have that take place sometimes in connection with sexual patients. Extremely powerful passion which can destroy whole nations, can destroy people, can destroy societies and cultures, but it's not regulated. And when control and discipline around it. Well, it's so that in uh, procreation by mean sexual means, and now this is about three point five billion people when um, when a couple haploid uh, um, eukaryotes happen to exchange some genetic material and then, you know, as a, as a, um, uh, and then return to haploid having shared some uh, genetic material. This act of where sexual uh, began, where sexual reproduction began. When sexual reproduction began, death was inevitable. You see, the, the, uh, the, uh, 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 or, or, Free care is simply itself and divide. Something where it takes two of them because of the uh, complexity of it, and it made possible to develop highly complex organisms, then uh, they become inevitable because precisely now we're having sexual reproduction. So there is a definite connection, and somehow it's surprising to me how there was an innate knowledge or understanding of that in, in a way. And uh, so there, there are several things that one can talk, puts aside hard theological models of reality a little bit, and start to examine. And one thing that strikes one is that there is a surprise knowledge of things that have somehow passed down through us through the evolutionary process, which we still somehow. So uh, the 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 idea of having these absolute art fix reality and not realizing that they're models and supposed to develop on those and that when we have new knowledge and new understanding we sometimes realize that some reality we've held are highly inappropriate and that they need to be changed and changed to knowledge and new understanding constantly and this is one of the reasons I wanted to bring this precisely this issue that we might explore a little bit and uh, discuss, you know, think about it and think about uh, our lack of knowledge and understanding. Uh, okay, I, I might ask you to slow down. Uh, I think we're losing some of your audio a little bit. Uh, all right. But uh, I, I want us to think together a little bit about how, uh, with ignorance or lack of understanding or lack of knowledge, we can make our models of reality or ideologies. And those ideologies are very difficult to change. Because when an ideology that's deeply held 
cattle, human mind reverts back to its most primitive section and goes back to the self-preservation modes and activates the amygdala in very hyperactive ways. I've said for years that ultra-conservatism was a birth defect. Uh, and it turns out three major university studies agree with me because and hardcore, as I like to call it, ideologies or models that have been turned into an ideology. And then a desire not to know anything that will have an, an, an impact on those models. And consequently, uh, the most in, highly inappropriate models are as if they should be a divine law of some kind. For example, the persecution of women, which is thoughtful. Uh, one woman is raped every four minutes in our world, and one woman is murdered every four hours. And we know that uh, there are still societies and cultures where women are subject to extreme degradation, and usually on religious principles. And we understand, too, that within the Christian sphere, and perhaps the Semitic sphere in general, because many of the laws of the Old Testament are simply commonplace Semitic laws which have been systematized, uh, commonplace uh, Semitic tribal laws. The idea that woman was first in sin, she took a bite of the pomegranate. I don't think it was an apple, because actually getting the seeds out of a pomegranate could lead you into sin, but I'm not sure about the apple. Uh, but anyway, the, uh, the idea that, see, the two trees in the Garden of Eden, I understand as being prophecies about the cross of Christ not something concrete or real. Anyway, the, uh, because uh, the, the late addition to the uh, creation narrative, which I think the rib story you know, came about after the return from Babylon, as I recall. And of course, it's a totally impossible story. Uh, you know, the, the man couldn't have given any mitochondrial DNA to the woman if you know, she was taken from his rib because it, it doesn't happen that way. Uh, in any case, because of that story, Women have been brutalized and persecuted and degraded and humiliated and subject to all kinds of, of violations of their personhood. And in other societies, it was partly the clash between the um, uh, fertility religions and the war, war god religions in it. And I think just before the great axial era, uh, perhaps a bit before the time of Zarathustra, who was the grandfather of the first axial era. Uh, when tribal societies were collapsing and coming into organized communities, societies, and then building into kingdoms and empires, of course, warriors are much more highly valued than the women who, who planted and harvested and processed things. So it has something to do with it. But these became models of reality, that women are subhuman, or that women you know, have a, a lower status, or that women have their personhood isn't as complete as male personhood. But of course, women, a female is the default gender. You know, we have to think about that. Female is the default gender. And what happens, you know, when a, when a fetus is conceived, there are vestigial sex organs for both. Now, if it's an XY chromosome that, that should be female, the female genitalia are simply going to blossom like a flower. They will look like a flower if you look at them up close. But if it's an XX, if it's an X, I mean an XX chromosome, a female, an XY chromosome, then the opium tubule, which contains a vestigial male genitalia, it becomes very complicated now to become a male. It has to generate an enzyme that shuts down the female mullarium um, tubule. Then it has to generate another enzyme that starts androgen forming. Sometimes they complete the job, sometimes they don't. You have things like Kleinfelter's syndrome, where a person is basically 80% female, 20% male, and, and uh, transgendered people. This is a valid, this is a valid clinical situation. <clears throat> That's why gender harmonization surgery is covered by the Healthcare Act here. <clears throat> and also in, in the Iran, I might add, uh, gender harmonization surgery is paid for by the government. Uh, so, you know, we have models of reality about these things that are absolute, hardcore concrete, but highly inappropriate and simply untrue in many cases.
So these are things that we need to take into consideration as you know, we have a, 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 a real change, a, a demographic change. In the 21st century, the younger generation come along and they don't buy into our prejudices and our malice and our hatred of my generation. And frankly, I really believe the younger generation are better than my generation. In so many ways, the younger generation that are taking over now, I have immense hope because, in my estimation, they're a great deal better than my generation. And uh, they, they've looked into things more deeply, understood more, things more deeply. But the absolute foundation stone of all true morality, the absolute foundation stone, is empathy and fairness. And empathy and fairness are some things that my generation are very intolerant of. So empathy and fairness at the base of it. The only way I could describe evil I mean, evil has no ontological being, it's not a thing. But evil is the absolute absence of empathy. And our Lord Jesus Christ commanded us the basis of morality upon which all the law and the prophets hang, to love your neighbor as yourself, but only be fulfilled on the basis of empathy and a, and a sense of fairness. Empathy is the only way you can possibly love your neighbor as yourself and fairness, and our love for God, you know, this is, for those who are believers, of course, become fairly natural. Uh, if we get rid of the, uh, the fear mechanism that dominates religion so much, and realize that Christianity is not simply a hell avoidance tactic. It's not simply a hell avoidance technique. It's much, has much more profound meaning than that. And yet, for most of our culture and society who are religious, it's merely a hell avoidance technique. So that's uh, that's what I want to say about models of reality. And I better shut up and let somebody see if we have any questions. <laughs> but thank you very much. Certainty. We'd have something that was. If we had absolutes, then Christians wouldn't be fighting each other and arguing with each other all the time, and, and Muslims wouldn't be killing each other. Uh, we have absolutes, of course. From our point of view, God is absolute. The heavenly kingdom is absolute. Uh, but uh, when when we form what we think are absolutes, we have to realize that we have Christians right next to us. We're going to say, no, that's not right at all. It's not you. I have a certainty, not you. So this is what we do have to think about and become informed by the new knowledge that comes along. Well, one thing that is certain, society civilization cannot exist without some kind of firm moral basis. And at the very cornerstone of our society and culture, as we know it, is really marriage and family. Uh, and the, the, you know the, that uh, when we see that, the, the, of course, the big of marriage and family is divorce, because you can practically get a mail order divorce. But I would say that if we have one certainty, is that our society and culture, as we know it and it exists, that one thing is certain that is stable system of marriage and family are necessary to the continuance of the society as we know it and, and want to defend it today. 
and that uh, that's a certainty. Uh, I, I think most of the Ten Commandments, we would agree, give us some real certainties. Uh, you know, it, 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 I, I have a, a different view on why they should be fulfilled, but you know, murder and theft and and uh, destroying ourselves with envy uh, about our neighbors and slandering other people. You know, uh, these things we can say with a great deal of certainty destroy and undermine communities, families, parish churches, companies, universities. Uh, any organization will be destroyed by those things, by doing those things that the Ten Commandments tell us not to. I think that's a kind of certainty. But to speak absolutely, um, you know, the doctrine of uh, the rapture, for example, which is some people's certainty and absolute, came into existence only in 1840s. Didn't exist anywhere in Christianity before that. So for some people, it's the most absolute certainty they know. Um, we, our Roman Catholic brethren, our, our, our Anglican brethren, and many of our Protestant brothers and sisters wouldn't agree with that certainty at all, you see. So that, uh, the model of reality doesn't give us certainty. There are some certainties, but our models of reality generally don't give those to us. Maybe I could ask you a, a question. There's, there's been any number of differences between Western and Eastern Christianity. I, I was wondering if you would compare a little bit uh, the, the two different uh, views of Christianity's relationship with science. In other words, how does the Eastern Christian uh, understanding of science differ uh, or, or overlap with some of the uh, Western Christian interpretations of science? But I think, you know, it, uh, from a theological point of view, there's much regard for scholasticism, things that came up like the, uh, the blood atonement doctrine are, are, are not, you know, are considered desperately wrong in these. Uh, original sin, these things, we, we simply have no tradition of that at all. But one thing that scholasticism did in the West was it gave the foundation stone for scientific dialogue. You know, when you passed into nominalism and all these others where you began to regard things in themselves instead of some abstract vision of things like some cosmos uh, of Plato or something. Uh, and also, of course, the, the Gnostic and Platonistic dichotomy between body and soul is something we never accepted, which is probably why medicine advanced so much more rapidly in the East and so much more thoroughly long before it developed in the West. On the other hand, uh, uh, I, you know, I've met some of the Vatican, uh, what they call now Sons of Galileo, which somehow has been a bit iffy over the centuries, but uh, the uh, astronomers from the Vatican. Uh, and, and the development of science that was really nurtured by early Protestantism before it found out that there could be a clash. Uh, and, and all of this developed out of a scholastic mode of thinking. And, and uh, in the East, we went so far as to uh, develop astronomy, medical science, and things. But because of the invasions and the constant warfare, this kind of got shut down. You know, Anna Komnina, the daughter of uh, uh, Alexei Komnenos, was the last one to build a great major hospital in the East. She wrote uh, the Alexiad, which was the first history written by a, uh, another woman. But she also wrote a textbook in astronomy, and she wrote about medicine. And her grandmother wrote several several books also, uh, she wrote about astronomy. Uh, the, the, the hospital system in the East developed scientifically where it didn't in the West. And to the point where you even had a, 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 a hospital-centered healthcare with uh, standards of how often you should boil the sheets, how often the hospital should be cleaned, the medical research factor, uh, which was built by uh, John the second, the third, I guess, the father of, of Alexis. And throughout the whole history, modern hospitals were built in the East, whereas in the West they were really palliative units. But the other hard sciences began to develop more in, in the West because, and really because of scholasticism. Uh, but what scholasticism developed into, not what it began as, it was very Aristotelian in the beginning. And I think at Oxford in, in the 1600s you could be fined a shilling if you diverge by one point from Aristotle's rational, uh, rationalism in a paper that you submitted. Uh, but 
what it developed into. So in, in, the, in the idea of between science and religion, the ironic thing is that the clash was more intense in the West than in the East. And perhaps it was because modern science grew out of the system of theologizing and then challenged much of the theology. And perhaps that's why the clash was greater. But uh, you know, in the West, we developed modern physics in a way, uh, borrowed a lot from Islam. Islam borrowed a lot from Byzantium in India. Um, you know, mathematics was developed higher in India than it was anywhere else in, in the most ancient times. But uh, the, the, the clash between the two developed in the West, partly because after the Reformation, which really was a um, um, disestablishment of, of Christianity in a way, a deconstruction, I should say, of Christianity. Uh, not having the tradition, the Holy Fathers, uh, well, and, and in the West, of course, the, uh, the papacy of the, of the uh, things, the only thing left was the book. So the book became the absolute. Therefore, everything in the book became frozen into a model of reality. Therefore, when science disagreed with those models, uh, it, it became uh, a point of hysteria in the 1800s. And having sacred tradition going back, you know, all the centuries, and having uh, some kind of something beyond the book, you can adapt more easily, more quickly, and more profoundly. And um, that's why I think um, the Vatican has sponsored so much uh, scientific endeavor. There's an adaptability there that on the surface it looks like it wouldn't because the Vatican seems to be frozen in time. And yet there's been more of an adaptability there than there have been among other Christians, many other Christians, not all, but many. So uh, it, 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 in the East, it, all of these things simply, it, it didn't matter whether the Earth moved around the Sun or the Sun moved around the Earth. It simply didn't matter to anybody. Nobody cared to make any difference in, in our faith or what we believed. Uh, so you didn't have the clash. In that, in that regard. So, uh, you know, one could form, but I think that's enough. <laughs> so. Thank you. Yeah, one, yeah. <clears throat> I'm going to move just a little closer so I perhaps you can see. Um, it's, uh, I want to ask a question about, it seems like it's part of your thesis that the conflicts reside in religion itself as an, an ideology or an adaptation, an adapt, adopting of a mode, a model of reality. <clears throat> and I want to press or challenge that supposition a little bit. You could say that today we live in a post-religious society, um, that we're really in a secular society now, not necessarily so much a religious or a Christian one, and yet it doesn't seem that we're any more peaceful uh, as a world. So. Um, you know, that, that would be one suggestion or, or, you know, someone else might suggest that, well, often, sure, often wars are fought over religion, but often they're fought over other things, or often they're fought over religion when really there's something else at stake, like wealth or oil, right? So, um, I mean, what would you say about those kinds of suggestions? Uh, you know, in the first place, the world's a great deal more peaceful than it used to be, and I think if one did a careful study of it and looked at the statistics, you find out that the world's a great deal more peaceful than it was a century ago or two centuries ago. Uh, the, uh, and, and you'll find that in many, many sociological and uh, studies, that, that in fact it is more peaceful. Now, it's not necessarily more peaceful because of differences between religion and science. It's more peaceful partly because we have, you know, when the Vietnam War came along and people could see on the telly what was going on, what actually was happening. Um, you know, that's why we got a flood of immigrants here into Canada, because if it had been the Second World War, everybody would have known what it was about. The Second World War began in 1931. Uh, most people think it began a little bit later. Uh, actually, it began with the, the Japanese invasion of Manchuria. Uh, everybody forgets about the Pacific War, because, you know, we're all uh, sort of Europhiles and Asian folks. But uh, in any case, it began with the Japanese invasion of Manchuria. Uh, the whole attitude of the Japanese Empire was something that wouldn't be feasible or possible today 
in the same way. Uh, so a lot of it has the fact that our greater communications have given us a greater empathy. And the inner communication between people, you know, when the uh, uh, Tiger Square uprising started, it had been planned for several years. And it had involved Serbian students who had very peacefully overthrown the Milosevic government in Serbia. And Serbian students were back and forth between Egypt, and some Egyptian young people had gone to Serbia, and they were studying this Serbian technique of how they overthrew the, the government with, in a completely peaceful manner. And one of the great moments for the younger generation I think, was in Tahrir Square, when they released themselves and kept themselves from erupting into violence. And that took enormous self-control, enormous discipline. And, and But the fact that we've been able to do those things in the previous centuries, we didn't. Now, the secularization that's taking place is partly a product of liberal democracy. And I don't know any of you sitting there who would want to do away with liberal democracy. But democracy is a kind of infudation. You know, the, the, the feudal system developed, and you had the lords and nobles who had all the powers and rights. But by infudation, that went to the middle class who really held up and supported society, the, the, the whole society. And then, of course, the House of Commons uh, became dominant over the House of Lords. And now the House of Lords is really rather insignificant uh, in, in, in the overall picture of things. Uh, so this, this uh, but, but the fact is that religion uh, has a great deal of power and structure, gives a great deal of power and structure in society that I think, personally, now this is my model of reality, I think it's absolutely necessary, and I think it has still a great deal to offer and a great deal to give. And if we can stop um, fighting each other and come to some actual conclusion about what our, our moral system actually consists in. And put the Old Testament behind us in that regard, with all due respect to Jews and Muslims, because I don't think a man should be able to sell his daughter into slavery. I don't think a man should be able to beat a slave almost to death, but not quite to death. I, I really don't think we should be able to stone unruly teenagers to death. I don't think we should have corporal punishment at all for teenagers. See? And we, of course, in Canada, we absolutely do not believe in the death penalty. We don't have one. And we won't even extradite somebody to a jurisdiction that is going to inflict or could inflict a death penalty. So you see, we, we have different systems. It's, it's grossly immoral to have a death penalty. For, for our, from our model of reality, it's anti-religious to have a death penalty. It's anti-Christian uh, to have a death penalty. It's, uh, it's, these things are, it's anti-Christian to uh, uh, humiliate and degrade other members of our society and our culture women in particular, uh, and so many things that some Christians think are absolutely necessary to Christianity, we would see them as being anti-Christian. And so we have to really ask Christians iron out, how are we going to respond to secularism? Well, one reason secularism is on the increase is because so many of us demand that people must believe things that they know are absolutely untrue in order to be Christians. Consequently, we're giving the game to secularists that way. So we're going to have to come to grips with those things which we think are absolutely necessary to be believed. Not all of us, of course. Oh, you know, there's absolutely no monolith in Christianity. There's no single belief in Christianity. Some Christians don't believe in the resurrection. Some Christians don't believe that Christ was actually God. Uh, you know, which things which for us are, are, are absolutes in our, in our religion. Things which we, the, the resurrection of the dead, for example. We have Christians who believe it's only spiritual that the body is not going to be resurrected. For us, the resurrection of the dead is an absolute. We believe that. It's absolutely intrinsic in our faith. Uh, or, or um, you know, marriage and family, for example, the covenant of marriage and church by coming with the grace of the Holy Spirit. For us, this is uh, a, a concrete part of our reality, of our belief. And uh, so, and I, and I know they are of our, uh, of our uh, Roman Catholic brethren as well. Um, but there, there's a type of view and opinion and understanding of these things among many Christians. So when we're talking about religion versus secularism, well, okay, we have to first of all define what, what are we talking about in this clash. Uh, personally, I think government should be secular. I wouldn't want an Islamic government uh, imposing 
Sharia law upon me or anybody I know. And I wouldn't want a Christian form of Sharia either because it might not be what we Orthodox Christians believe. It might be what some kind of uh, radical Calvinist believe. Remember, apartheid was a Christian religious doctrine. And because the religion had so much power in the state, apartheid became civil law. But apartheid was a Calvinist Arminian doctrine. And uh, this, is what, this is what my issue is here. When we're back to a secular society, we cannot do it by insisting that people must believe something that they know is absolutely not true. And then think that we're going to win the battle against secularism. We have to come together as Christians and iron out precisely what it is we're defending and what it is we're presenting. When I get up on the stage with people from six different denominations of Christians, and somebody asks us a question, they might get six different answers, or at least four different answers that absolutely clash with the answers that we and, and say the Roman Catholics and some other Southern Baptists might give. Um, you know, we're talking about this in, in regards to abortion. Uh, so we would stand together, but then other Christians would say, no, 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 we're Christians too, and we don't believe that. So this is one of the problems we have, you see. We, have, we Christians have different models of reality that clash not only with science, but sometimes very, very radical, and sometimes very fanatic with each other, you know. I mean, the, the Pope of Rome is not Antichrist. 666 doesn't mean, uh, you know, the Pope of Rome. Um, I was on a radio station once called the Tower of Towers, so you can imagine. And uh, I was there with a Roman Catholic priesthood, and um, they didn't know enough about Orthodoxy or Canada, you know, to ask any significant mm -hmm. questions. But they told him, what do, your, what do the people in your church call you? And it's what they call me father. They call you father? Yeah, in the Bible, call any man on earth father. Of course, it also says, don't call any man your teacher or your leader or your master. See? So school, you know, schools are calling, leading our students into sin because they make us call somebody teacher. Well, he was silent for a moment. And then the, uh, one of the people said, we have to return to the faith of our founding fathers. And the Catholic priest said, the faith of your what? <laughs> <laughs> founding fathers. Oh, I see. But you're not supposed to call them fathers. Didn't you just say that? So you see, these kind of, you know, when I've lectured at universities, I've asked students, I, sometimes I lecture in a combined physics philosophy class, but since I go under full sale, that religion comes up. Now, how many of you were raised in family? Now, before the 1990s, people born. 1990s, and sometimes be as many as 90-95%. And then I would ask, how many of you still consider yourself to be Christians? Maybe 4 or 5%. After the 90s, it's more like 50% were raised in Christian families. Uh, you know. But then I started asking why. Hypocrisy and bigotry rank very high in the reasons they reject Christianity. And when Mohandas Gandhi said, and I, I agree with Mohandas Gandhi, the biggest, trouble, the biggest problem with Christians is they pay so little attention to Jesus Christ. Uh, and and this, is, this is an issue. We Christians, are we going to stand against secularism? Well, we better get our act together. And we better slow off on the fanaticism and the harshness of the brutality. That's another one. We might, I believe that uh, Jesus Christ is my, my, my Savior, my Redeemer, and that uh, through him I can enter into the heavenly kingdom. But I'm not going to be able to convince anybody else of that, by telling them, so, uh, two centuries ago, uh, who was a very sweet, good mother and did all kinds of good stuff in her little isolated village, uh, because she didn't know Jesus Christ, she's going to burn forever in hell because God hates her. I mean, how far am I going to get with, with something like that by arguing with the secularists? We need to get our act together and talk to each other more, we Christians and try to iron out, you know, what we actually believe, you know, what essentials of what we believe. And do we really need to be brutalizing and psychologically bullying or emotionally bullying other human beings? And do we really need to base our religion on fear instead of love? Because that's precisely what we've been doing. And yet, John, that's fear is not yet learned how to love perfectly. Because love, above. and above, Paul said we have not been given over in bondage to a spirit of fear, and yet we base 90% of our religion is based on the fear of hell, not the love of God. So, you know, we've got to get right together, you know, really, about it. 
So that's all I can say about the clash of sectors. You know. Anybody else? Well, let me ask one final question, and I think we'll, 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 we'll wrap it up. Very often we read religious and sacred texts to teach us about religious truth. What does science, the, the learning how to read about light and blood and, and rocks, teach us about religious truth? Well, you know, I mean, I have to speak, you know, from an Eastern perspective now, because that's what I have. But the more, you know, I studied, of course, articles that's put into quantum uh, later, and I've studied uh, uh, in my fourth year of neurobiology right now, as a matter of fact. Um, the more I, you know, I have, I have uh, three uh, neurobiologists or neuroscientists who come here to the monastery for liturgy. One of them has uh, done her doctorate and done some very work. And she said, I realize that by studying DNA and studying the neurosystem, I'm reading the alphabet of God. I'm reading the language of God. And uh, for me, the more I've gone into the quantum aspect of physics, the deeper my faith in God has become. The more light shed on my perspective and understanding about God. And for me, it's enriched my faith. And actually, I know a number of cosmologists. I don't know one of them who's an actual atheist, you see. One of specialized uh, tend to be sometimes. But uh, the, uh, the fact is, uh, most cosmologists will say that, well, there's being in the universe. You know, they don't want to say God because that's not scientific. Being might not be either. But anyway, they, that we at least, Minas uh, Capetos, I think, in one of his books said, uh, we now have reason, we have, now we have solid reason for saying that there's being in the universe. In other words, possibility of God. Uh, and for me, it, that my conviction of that becomes stronger the more I delve into, into modern science. Uh, and that's, um, so I think, I think everybody could find a similar experience. Even in evolution, the things that I see in evolution by not getting hysterical and panicked about it, but by stepping back and paying attention, uh, really make me realize that the, the psychological, the psychology taught in the Old Testament, and some of the innate understandings of humanity are really verified to me in evolution. And uh, consequently, for me, from my point of view now, from my model of reality, I don't want to go beyond that, to, to say, make any other claims. Evolution is something that happens because that's the way life is programmed to happen, and that's the way it happens, from my point of view, by God's will, the eternal will. So that's that's just my take on it. But that's my model of reality. I, I wouldn't uh, suggest everybody has to accept that. This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.